Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We have a usual format for you today. We will kick things off with a news roundup in which we're going to talk about three uh, things that have been in the news this week. The first of which is a deal announced this morning between Microsoft and Xiaomi uh, for a couple of things. One is the sale of patents uh, and the other one is that Microsoft software will be pre-installed on Xiaomi devices. Uh, The second is a set of uh, connected rumors and reports about uh, Apple potentially releasing a 5K display for the Mac. Uh, and then third is this code of conduct that's been signed between a number of large American tech companies and the European Union around uh, hate speech. And so those will be our three news roundup topics. We'll then move on to our question of the week. And the question of the week this week is, what is the state of the smart home market and what's going to change over time? And this builds off a piece that I wrote that was recently published on Recode about the smart home being stuck. And so we're going to drill down to that a little bit and I'll be asking, answering the questions here while Aaron asks them. And then our third uh, segment will be uh, a discussion of uh, Mary Meeker. Uh, she's a, a prominent analyst, used to be with Morgan Stanley, is now uh, with another firm. She does a slide deck every year about kind of the state of the internet, essentially. And she just released that as part of the... Uh, Recode Code Conference. And so uh, we'll be discussing some of the kind of key themes emerging from those slides, which are always interesting to talk about. And then we'll wrap up with uh, our weekly pick, in which case Aaron will have uh, a recommendation for us. So let's go to the news roundup. The first topic was um, this deal between Microsoft and Xiaomi. Specifically, it transfers uh, 1,500 patents. So it's a sale of 1,500 patents from Microsoft to Xiaomi. And then I think a patent licensing agreement for other patents. And then also um, that certain Microsoft software will be pre-installed on Xiaomi devices, specifically Microsoft Office and Skype. And so, Aaron, what was your take on that news? Well, it was like a flashback to the 90s in the sense that uh, we're watching Microsoft go back to its bread and butter of licensing and pre-installing its software on OEM devices. Like that was... That was the very first thought that came to mind was, wow, like Microsoft software pre-installed on something again, because it feels like that old model has been hanging around, but not developing. So it's interesting to see it develop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I, I, Mike, we've talked about Windows Phone a couple of times over the last few weeks and, um, you know, how, how that's going badly. And it's been clear for some time now that Microsoft's main strategy in mobile devices needs to be getting its apps onto other devices that it doesn't own and sell itself. And so Xiaomi and this deal is obviously an example of that. There have been other deals as well. To my mind, one of the most interesting is still the Cyanogen relationship. So Microsoft has an investment in the Cyanogen company that makes the Cyanogen mod Android version. Uh, or fork, uh, and uh, that that deal should see them pre-install some of the Microsoft apps onto Cyanogen Android devices as well. Um, but uh, you know, this is clearly a key thing for Microsoft going forward, and so their ability to sign these deals, which they've done with Samsung and others as well, uh, is going to be really important for them to to get these apps in front of people. Um, the patent stuff's really interesting too. Xiaomi's obviously been interested in entering the U.S. market for a long time. I've seen a lot of people responding to this news today. Uh, by saying, oh, this is how Xiaomi finally gets its smartphones into the US because patents were always an issue here. I, that may be part of this, um, but I suspect it goes well beyond that. If you look at the actual patents involved, they're not mostly mobile patents. They're for all kinds of other things as well. So I suspect it's just a set of patents that Microsoft's decided it doesn't really want to be developing in-house and is happy to kind of get some money for by selling it to Xiaomi at this point. Um, that may well lead to a launch in the US, but I, I really don't think Xiaomi is going to do well in the US uh, they've mostly done well in emerging markets, and I think that's going to continue to be the case to the to the extent that they do well at all anywhere. It'd be interesting to know how much the pre-installed software agreement played into the patent licensing or patent sale agreement. Uh, you know, I I wonder what it took to. I, I wonder if if Xiaomi took convincing, um, and app, and Microsoft kind of sweetened the deal on the patent right. side in order to get Xiaomi to pre-install the the Office and Skype apps. Yeah, kind of a quid pro quo of some kind. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so our second news roundup topic is is a variety of reports about a 5K display from Apple. And Aaron, you've been kind of following this a bit more closely than I have. Can you give us a quick sort of roundup of what you've been reading? Sure. So uh, I think it was yesterday news broke that supply of the of the very aged Apple Thunderbolt display 
was getting pretty constrained, that it was drying up in a bunch of different <clears throat> parts of the world, especially in Europe. And, and often when you see a, a pattern I've noticed is that when you see supply tightening in Europe, it usually indicates that it's going to start tightening elsewhere. And that means Apple is probably lining up for a refresh. But the big question was, how do they refresh it? The big constraint that Apple has been facing has actually been the way that Intel has been unable to integrate um, what's called DisplayPort 1.3 technology into their chipsets. Um, in fact, and the reason is because DisplayPort 1.3 allows for something called singles, single stream transport, which in turn allows for a computer to drive a 5K display. And... Uh, and so it felt early because Intel is a bit slow on this end, on its end. It felt early for Apple to come out with a 5K display because of technical reasons. Well, 9 to 5 Mac, and this is, gosh, just about an hour ago, uh, posted rumors that Apple is actually lining up a 5K display that has an integrated graphics card in the display itself, which would solve the 5K problem because the graphics card within the display could drive... The, the 5K resolution. And it also kind of creates this elegant solution to giving the display a lot more, um, uh, or rather an ability to connect to a lot more Macs than it could otherwise, because it was going to be a while and it was probably going to be higher end Macs that would have the ability to drive th this high of a resolution. And with an integrated GPU, um, all the computer needs is Thunderbolt 3, and that's going to be essentially you know, every new Mac from here on forward is going to have Thunderbolt 3. So it'll be really fascinating to see this rumor play out. Um, it definitely, the timing feels right for uh, an announcement at WWDC, so we'll know for sure in, in a little less than two weeks. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating one. I mean, it's, uh, it won't, won't, won't do me any good. I suspect my Mac Pro is a few years old at this point, still very powerful, but just, just fallen behind in terms of the kinds of displays it's able to support. Um, but yeah, this this seems like a potentially an elegant solution to the problem. I, I think the the solution that was proposed before this last story came out was that you'd basically have to use both the ports on your Mac to drive a single display, um, because kind of each port would kind of drive half the the required bandwidth, I guess. And so this seems like a much more elegant solution, one that could support sort of multi-display configurations and things like that as well. So it's kind of it feels like a it feels like a classic Apple solution because there's an elegance to it and a simplicity, and it also is going to make the product more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really kind of a classic, like a like oh, that's a very creative way to do it that nobody would have thought of. Oh, and I'm going to have to pay two hundred fifty dollars more for this right, thing. Right, right, yeah. Okay, our third uh, news roundup topic is uh, this a code of conduct that was signed between uh, what the EU somewhat entertainingly calls IT companies and and the EU itself uh, with regard to uh, hate speech. And uh, I say it's entertaining because these companies are Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Microsoft, of which I think only one would traditionally be referred to as an IT company, but this is just sort of illustrative of the way the EU sees the world sometimes. And, and it's a hard group of companies to categorize in any other way, I guess, too. Um, the, the heading is European Commission and IT companies announce code of conduct on illegal online hate speech. And it's a useful reminder that in the EU, not only is uh, hate speech considered undesirable, it's actually illegal uh, in the EU. And, and so this, it occupies a slightly different space legally from in the US where it's merely undesirable but otherwise protected by First Amendment rights and so on. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, this, these companies have got together with the EU to agree to a set of uh, bullet points essentially as part of this code of conduct, the vast majority of which are about uh, taking things down when they receive an official complaint. And, and uh, the, most of the detail is about making the process transparent, acting quickly on people's uh, complaints and notifications and so on, having a standard process, ad uh, allocating adequate resources. Uh, but there was one bullet point that kind of stuck out to me um, because it, it's a bit different from this. And um, it reads, the IT companies and the European Commission recognizing the value of independent counter speech against hateful rhetoric and prejudice aim to continue their work in identifying and promoting independent counter narratives, new ideas and initiatives, and supporting educational programs that encourage critical thinking. Um, and this sort of 
to my mind at least, crosses something of a line. So it's one thing to take down undesirable speech, which even if it's not illegal in other parts of the world, most of these companies have policies that they will take down you know, either speech that either incites hatred or violence. Um, but this kind of goes a little further than that. Sort of, it's about counter-programming, basically, and about promoting other viewpoints that, that express the opposite view. And it just it feels like curious timing, especially when Facebook's just been working so hard to sort of diffuse the, the kind of right-wing trending topics story from the last few weeks that they would sign up for something like this that appears to sort of promote, uh, well, promoting uh, certain kinds of stories and so on. So it seems funny. And the only thing I can think of is that the, the, the companies basically are trying to diffuse uh, any EU interest in kind of regulating them more heavily in other ways. And obviously we see the current uh, EU case against Google that we discussed a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, YouTube, uh, not Google as a whole, but YouTube specifically is part of this deal. Uh, and you imagine some of these other companies are kind of trying to play nicely with the EU in order to avoid that outcome. But this, this one bullet point just struck me as kind of odd. Well, and this is one of the tricky things about any time government attempts to regulate speech. You'll notice the language in there is pretty blurry, and it's going to be hard to know what a government agent uh, would consider um, the right kind of speech to satisfy the requirements. Um, and, and it feels it feels like it opens the door for very arbitrary judgments about speech, um, which you know, I having been trained as a lawyer and having been through constitutional law, uh, it does kind of give me the shivers a little bit as well. Um, you know, and there's another important point, which is that in the U.S., the, the, the law regarding the First Amendment protection of free speech also includes the right to not have to speak. Right. Meaning that if the government wants to make you speak in a certain way, you can refuse. And so it's not just that the things you say can't be unreasonably censored by the government, but it's also that the government can't make you say things you don't want to say. Right. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of the market challenging the way these companies are speaking, or I, I should say, you know, using us in a way that creates a voice through which the companies are speaking, like Facebook deciding what to promote in somebody's newsfeed. I like the idea that the market is making those choices rather than a government agency. So like you, I'm, 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 it, that makes me feel anxious, especially because, <clears throat> you know, the EU has notoriously been trying to regulate the entire Internet uh, for quite a while now, and this uh, seems to indicate that they're just keeping up those efforts. Right. Yeah, no, it'd be interesting to watch how this proceeds. I mean, it's just a code of conduct, and it's not really clear what sort of teeth are behind this if any of the companies are deemed not to be in compliance with it. But uh, it's it's just interesting to watch and, and uh, hasn't received much coverage, but I think it's actually, actually fairly important uh, stuff here. All right, well, let's move on from our news roundup to our question of the week. And as I said at the outset, um, it's my turn to answer the questions this week. And we're kind of basing this off, or at least using as a starting point for this discussion, a piece that I wrote for Tech Pinions recently called The Smart Home is Stuck, um, which was then syndicated to Recode. And one of the enjoyable things about having something published on Recode is it reaches a fairly wide audience. And so I've been approached by a, a number of companies over the last couple of weeks since it ran uh, who operate in the smart home space and had a number of interesting conversations with them about their views on this. And uh, so we thought it'd be interesting to kind of do a deeper dive on, on what the state of the smart home market is and whether that's likely to change over time. So let's start with the Rico piece, because I'm sure we have listeners who, um, you know, either read it and want a refresher or or haven't read it yet. So so tell us again, you know, give us a summary of what you said in the piece. I mean, especially because you gave the impression or, or you made the argument in the piece that the smart home market is basically stuck. So di dive into that for us to start. Yeah, absolutely. So the basic thrust of the piece is that the smart home market is stuck and uh, so I focused on a few different things there. And one is that most smart home uh, products are basically solutions in search of a problem. You know, most of us use various things in our home, whether it's light switches or light bulbs or thermostats or uh, heating and cooling systems or uh, ovens or refrigerators or whatever else it might be. We use these things uh, and we're perfectly happy with them. They don't really feel like they need to change dramatically. You flip the switch, the light turns on, uh, the light bulb runs out, you very inexpensively swap it out for a new one. 
uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, these things are inexpensive, they're reliable, they tend to last you know, 20, 30 years in many cases, don't tend to break, um, they're not dependent on connectivity, they don't need to integrate with anything else, they work very, very well. And yet all these smart home solutions have come along that seek to replace these things with something that is uh, more complex, more expensive, that requires connectivity, uh, that adds a sort of quote-unquote smart layer, but often with very little benefit. Um, and so that means that there are people out there who are interested in this stuff. There are always people, and I include myself in this number, who are interested in gadgets and technology in general and uh, you know, like to invest in these things. But there, there hasn't, with few exceptions, been much of a sort of return on investment for most of these products. They've basically been novelties and at best haven't really provided a ton of value uh, and as such, the whole market's kind of got stuck at the early adopter phase. There are early adopters out there who will buy these things. And, but what you see is companies like Nest, instead of really deepening the value of the products they have, kind of keep expanding into new categories because what they're doing is basically maxing out a whole set of different categories within the smart home one by one uh, until you get to sort of the maximum possible number of users. And then you move into a new category and try to win share within that category as well. And so uh, it's, it's the solution to search of a problem. Uh, in the vast majority of cases, there are other issues like the expense, the fact that you need lots of devices to really make something like this work. I mean, think about how many light bulbs you have in your home so that if you wanted to smarten, as it were, your entire sort of home lighting infrastructure, you'd have to buy probably dozens of light bulbs. Uh, or you know, equally switches uh, from an installation perspective thermostats are okay it's a bit complicated and a bit scary you can electrocute yourself if you don't know what you're doing uh, but it's not too bad but sort of swapping out uh, an outlet uh, or a light switch or something like that involves you know real wiring and that's challenging for many people as well uh, it's complicated it's fragmented the user interfaces often aren't very good there's just all kinds of stuff about the space that make it really user unfriendly and that, that contribute to that problem. And so that was really uh, what the Recode piece was about, which is that, that this part of the smart home market really seems to be stuck at the point that it's at and seems to seems like it's going to have a hard time breaking out of the early adopter phase. So that that is pretty miserable. Everything you described is the reason I haven't made much enough effort to adopt a smart home yet because... It, it is expenses. It feels really fragmented. Um, the, a lot of the approaches to me feel weird rather than useful. Um, I, I mean, is this is there more to the smart home market than this? I mean, because this is what I see. This is what I see when I wander through Home Depot or, you know, I see an ad on the internet. Is there more to the smart home market than what you just described? Yeah, I think that's an important point to pick up because the Recode piece. I mean, it said the smart home is stuck, and really, what I was talking about was one specific aspect of the smart home market, uh, which is uh, the model that gets most of the attention, frankly, in the press. Uh, Nest is obviously the poster child for this model, but there are lots of other companies in the space too. And it's a specific model, which is about a retail purchase followed by self-install in most cases. So you go into a Best Buy or a Home Depot, you buy a box off the shelf or maybe 20 boxes off the shelf. You take them home, you install them yourself, and that's the model. Uh, and so you're paying full price for the device and it's a one-off purchase. And the only way the company makes any more money from you is if you buy more of the device or replace the ones that you have. Um, so that's one model, and that's really what the Recode piece was about. But that's not the only model that exists within the smart home market. And there is another model that's also quite prevalent that's actually doing rather better, uh, and that is the professional installation, subsidized devices, and service fees model. Um, and so a number of different examples of this. Uh, there's a local company here in Utah called Vivint, which is one of the biggest sort of smart home service providers that does this. Um, AT&T the wireless carrier um, with a certain part of their business has this digital life solution, which is uh, also about professional installation and service fees. And there's a company called Alarm.com, who I spoke to earlier today, uh, which uh, basically acts as a sort of a white label solution for uh, mostly today security providers. So a lot of independent security providers that sell alarm systems and the service that goes with them use alarm.com equipment and services uh, as a sort of white label thing. So they slap their own brand on it and then it's a sort of security service, but one that's expanded quite a bit into other aspects of the smart home as well. So those are just three examples of this model. But in all three cases, typically what happens is you don't just buy a product and install it yourself. In most of those cases, you order a service from a company that then comes and does a professional installation, might be a security panel, and certainly all three of those companies have a security element that's really important in this. 
but they, they will install a security panel. They may install sort of video cameras. They may install some kind of smart doorbell or smart door locks or something like that. Uh, there might be other things like a garage door opener or a water pressure sensor uh, or um, light switches or thermostats or other things like that. Uh, but they'll install those for you and typically won't charge you for the full cost of either the device or the installation up front, but rather will sign you up then for some kind of service fee. And essentially what we're talking about here is smart home as a service and, and Alarm.com uses that technology terminology uh, in talking about what they do on behalf of their distributors. Uh, but essentially it's a service-based model. So the devices and the installation are subsidized. And so rather than paying for devices where the value proposition isn't that clear, you're paying for a service. And again, often security is a core component of that. Uh, but there are other things that are part of that. And so you're paying for the functionality. You're paying for the ability to do certain of these things in your home. And so it overcomes several of the shortcomings of the kind of retail purchase model. Uh, the installation is taken care of by professionals. So A, you don't have to worry about wiring. It's not hard to do. Somebody does it for you. You don't have to worry about whether it's going to work right because it, they will make sure it works right before they leave. Uh, from an integration perspective, these things often come as integrated solutions so that they're, they're designed that all the elements work well with each other rather than having to talk to other things that may not uh, play nicely together. Um, there's uh, far less upfront cost. In some cases, there's no upfront cost. In other cases, it's heavily subsidized. Uh, there's a monthly service fee, which is familiar to many people from A, alarm services, which is the heritage that some of these companies are coming from. Uh, but B, in general, you know, whether it's Netflix or Spotify or whatever, we're getting very used to paying for things on a monthly basis in a way that makes the, the cost much more manageable than an upfront uh, model. And the evidence is that these companies are, are doing quite well. So AT&T periodically reports the numbers of subscribers it has for digital life, and it's been going up steadily over time, so a few hundred thousand customers. Alarm.com is, is a public company at this point, and so you can go and look at their financials. And they're, they're also not huge. I think their revenue last quarter was somewhere around $50 million. Um, but they're growing and they're profitable, which is important as well. Vivint, uh, at least this part of Vivint is not a public company, but uh, you know they've been growing very well. And, and one of their real strengths is, is sales, um, that they've, they've really cracked the model of door-to-door -door sales especially. And so that's a big, big strength of theirs. But for all of these reasons, these companies are actually doing very well. And so whereas the sort of retail purchase self-install model seems to be somewhat stuck, this other part of the smart home market seems to be doing rather better. Uh, and that's important to note, I think, because it's, it's actually growing faster. As I say, these companies, some of them are, are profitable doing what they're doing. Uh, and, and arguably, some of the most successful companies in this market, even though they don't fit the model that gets most of the media attention. So these companies that are doing this professionally and providing the smart home as a service, it seems that they're relying in part on the fact that the market right now is fragmented and, and expensive and complicated. Um, do, do you see them having a long future that way, though, or do you think the technology on the consumer side will eventually catch up so that anybody can set up their own smart home relatively easily? Yeah, so I think there's a few things to talk about there. I think one is, um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of smart home solutions are solutions in search of a problem. You know, there is no problem that they're really solving for most people, and that's why they're unattractive. And so obviously these installation-based providers and service-based providers have that same problem you know if if this isn't really a solution to a problem the customer has they're not going to sell really much better and that's why a lot of them are focused on well-established areas that people generally do see the need for like security and then are kind of expanding incrementally from there so i think that does give them an advantage um on the other hand uh you know those companies are also providing as you say an integrated solution and, and that does overcome some of the fragmentation here uh, alarm.com doesn't make most of its own stuff it has some panels and things that it does make itself but they work with a lot of partners. And so they're a part, big part of their value proposition is integrating those things, making sure that they work well together and so on. Uh, Vivint does make a lot of its own gear. They used to license some of the alarm.com stuff. They now make their own stuff. And so they have more of a vertically integrated approach. But again, the point is it all works together. And, and AT&T is more like alarm.com in that it, it does provide integration between third-party equipment. Um, but yeah, it overcomes some of the fragmentation. That's a big problem. You know, there's a single user interface typically rather than having to use five different apps to control products from different companies. And so that really helps matters as well. Um, I think over time, though, we're seeing some other 
innovations too. Some of the other companies that I've spoken to in the last week or so, has a horrible name, but it's it's big ass fans uh, to use an American pronunciation. And so it's <clears throat> they do have a donkey on their logo. So uh, at least in theory, that's what the the middle name of the the middle word of the name refers to. But um, they make ceiling fans and that kind of thing. But they are expanding into other areas uh, like HVAC systems. And so they've got you know a page on their website that talks about that. They haven't released it yet. Um, but uh, and they do this for homes and commercial use, and they uh, are typically installed by contractors and so on. Um, and yet, um, you know, they they are smart. It's not service based. It's a single sort of purchase. You'd buy it when you were building a home or renovating an existing home, perhaps. Uh, so it's not a service model as such. But they've really put a lot of work into thinking about okay how do we actually make this better than what you have and so they have some clever stuff with presence they have a lot of sensors that they install around the home to figure out okay which rooms actually need cooling right now uh, and where do you really need to run the ac for example or the heating to bring things up to an optimal temperature and so i think you know some companies at least are really thinking about how to make the smart stuff smarter so it really does provide value and isn't just kind of connectivity and and app-based control for the sake of it uh, and so I think that will improve over time and that will help somewhat. And I think over time you will see some more hybrid models where perhaps you do pay for professional installation. And you can do that with Nest today, uh, but pay for professional installation, but still kind of buy the devices outright. But the devices will be smarter and provide more value. And I think that will help them to become more appealing as well. So you'll see some of this hybrid stuff happen. I do think the installation stuff is a big advantage. I do think you're going to see a lot of... Uh, action in that area in particular and i think you know it's something I, I actually wrote a piece about a while back for tech pinions this installation advantage in the smart home i do think some of the existing sort of retail only companies are going to have to do more to provide not just installation professionally because as i say nest does that already but the kind of service and support and management and so on that comes after that um, and so that will be something that i think is well worth watching as well uh, in general though you know there are some pretty big issues still a lot of the stuff isn't that compelling the installation is tough, it's expensive to own, and there are a lot of people that just won't see the value. And so I do think it's still going to be a very slow ramp to something that becomes more mainstream over time. So, you know, you talked us through some of the changes you kind of see in the future for the smart home market. What other changes do you see that uh, that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, I think there's there's going to be a fragmentation in the market, not not in the sense that there is today, but I think there's going to be multiple different niches. Perhaps that's a way to think about it. So another one of the companies that I spoke to over the past couple of days uh, is a company that's based out in Boston, uh, and I think it's One Vision Resources is their name, and they basically act as a white-label service arm for smart home installation companies. And so this is a, yet another way to break up the model. But they really focus on high net worth individuals. So very wealthy people that are building really or renovating really big, expensive homes where the, the home automation systems can cost sort of anywhere between ten and forty thousand dollars to install. And these guys basically provide a really great service back end for all of that on behalf of the people that do the installation who typically aren't very good at service and so there's going to be niches like this where there are specific opportunities around particular types of companies um you know and that's been a, a market for a long time the kind of high net worth individual market the thing is though that that the functionality has become uh, much more affordable you know you can kind of cobble together your own solutions through uh, off-the-shelf components today for a lot less than this stuff used to cost in the past so that's interesting i think the other thing that's interesting is how we control all this stuff because a lot of it's been controlled by either you push buttons on the device itself or you have some kind of smartphone app or whatever one thing that we haven't seen a lot of yet but it's starting to emerge is voice control and so you've got the Amazon Echo uh, speaker that does voice control and integrates, for example, with Nest and some other smart home solutions. Vivint's really been talking up voice control. Uh, the, the head of strategy had a piece in TechCrunch recently, and he was at a conference last week where he spoke about it again, really talking up voice control as a more natural user interface for this stuff. I think that's got a long way still to go because uh, you know it's, it's fine if it's turn off the lights, but it's much more complex if you're saying, what's the temperature in this room right now? Okay, change it by two degrees and then there's this other room you want to actually turn it down by a bit and it just gets very complicated for anything more than the very simple interaction so i think voice will certainly have a role i'm not convinced it's going to be the interface for this stuff 
There's another company that I was told about today uh, called, uh, actually I can't remember the name of the company, but they go by Josh A, Josh.ai, and he's named after the founder's name is Josh. Well, it's another one that's focused on pretty high-end uh, home automation stuff, but they're doing uh, experiments into things like gesture-based interfaces. So you combine voice and gesture such that you say, you kind of point to a particular light and say, turn that light off. And so there's a, a sensor in the room that detects which light you're pointing at, and then the voice sensor uh, picks up that you're saying to turn something off and combines the two together to, to make a change. And so there's, there's efforts going on into all kinds of ways to make the interfaces for these things better as well. And so I think there will be a lot of innovation over the next few years, and some of it will make some meaningful improvements. A lot of it's targeted at the high-end stuff, so it'll take a while to trickle down to kind of you and me and, and regular people. Um, but there's a lot of innovation going on, and so it, it's going to be interesting to watch the space. Uh, some of the fundamental issues won't be overcome by any of this, but uh, others will be, and I think the combination of kind of the professional installation, the service model, and then some of these new interfaces and things will, will help to move all of this forward somewhat. Thanks for that. That was really interesting. I'm, I'm, I have to admit I'm a little sad that it's not maturing and coming together more quickly than that but i guess we have to take what we get yeah absolutely i mean it was one of these funny things we built a home a couple of years ago now and you know i'm a gadget freak you know i love technology and that kind of thing and so i first imagined that when we when we started building the home that we were going to have all this smart home stuff because you know a new build is like your perfect opportunity to do this stuff and really nest is the only thing that we have in our home um and having you know lived in it for a year and a half now it's it's debatable whether it really makes that much of a difference. Uh, and especially recently, the Nest has been really flaky. Um, a bunch of the thermostats keep going offline for no apparent reason, even when the Wi-Fi stays up. Um, there's all kinds of issues with it. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where I want it to be more advanced than it is and to, to move further than it is, and it, it just isn't. And uh, I think that's just the state of things right now and, and, and will likely continue to be for some time to come. All right, well, let's move on to our third segment. And as I mentioned up front, we're going to be talking through uh, Mary Meeker's slide deck that she just presented at the Code Conference this week. Um, this is an annual deck that she put together when she was at Morgan Stanley a few years ago. She's now with a new firm. We'll post a link to uh, her deck on the website um, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, it's an interesting deck always because it's really just a compilation of other people's stuff. Um, and I have mixed feelings about it for that reason because there's, there's relatively little kind of unique insight in there it's mostly pulling together data and insights provided by other people into one place and that has value obviously but uh, I feel sometimes as though it gets more attention than it, it deserves because it is largely a, an aggregation of other people's work but when you see all this together there are some interesting themes that emerge from it some of which she pulls out directly and some of which occur to you as you go through the slides and so we're going to pull out a few of the themes that we saw in the deck and kind of talk about those because there is some really ins real insight in some of the slides in there and I think they're well worth discussing. So Aaron, you want to kick us off with one of the themes that you picked up on? Yeah, well, she started off relatively early in the deck talking about advertising and ad spending um, and how mobile is growing really, really quickly. Um, in fact, uh, it's, as far as internet goes, mobile is kind of exploding, whereas desktop is leveling off. Desktop last year grew by about 5%, whereas mobile grew by about 66%. So it's pretty rapid growth. I think what's interesting about mobile advertising, well, there are a couple things that, that stand out to me. One, and, and this was a fascinating insight, is if you look at the percentage of ad spending relative to the time people spend in those different media, um, radio, TV, internet, they all are roughly around the same as, as percentage of ad spending versus a percentage of time people spend in those, in those media. The, the two big discrepancies are in print, um, ad spending is right now at about 16%, though that's been declining. But people only spend about 4% of their time in print compared to radio, TV, internet, and mobile. Um, whereas if you go over to mobile, people spend about 25% of their time on a mobile device when they're viewing media, but only about 12% of ad spending right now is directed to mobile. And that's a pretty huge gap. And it definitely indicates that there's still a ton of headroom when it comes to mobile advertising spending. And, uh, and I think that's really interesting. I also want to say, and this is another theme she picked out, 
is the nature of mobile advertising appears to be developing very differently than the other forms of advertising we've had to date. And it's in the sense that mobile has enabled advertising to be more interactive and even give us a version of sort of an augmented reality around us that makes it more exciting. Um, she gave examples of, for example, Snapchat lenses that are sponsored by brands. So Taco Bell has a Snapchat lens where you can make your head look like a taco. And Gatorade has a lens that makes it look like you just won the Super Bowl and somebody dumped a big bucket of Gatorade over your head. You know, what's cool about these is this is this is fun. This is entertaining. And advertising as entertainment has always worked well. But what makes this unique is that it's it's entertainment that's interactive. And I think that part is really cool. I think... I think uh, you know, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that fun is useful. And so when you can make things fun, it feels important and useful to people. Um, and, and also this idea of augmented reality, you know, even when it's not something sort of trivial like a Snapchat lens, House, for example, has figured out in their app, they have this view in my room feature where you can pick out a furniture item or a light fixture or something like that. And you can actually sort of take a picture of the room where you want to place it and then visually insert it into the room so you can imagine or visualize what that piece of furniture or lighting fixture would look like in the room that, you, that you're redecorating. You know, stuff like that is really a super powerful form of advertising. And, uh, and, and it's not so much, I think what stands out here is not that, that mobile that 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 this that this new trend in advertising is unique because it's mobile. I think it's just that mobile has enabled this new kind of advertising that's interactive and augmented, um, and I would and I would also say fun. And so so again, mobile is not the issue here. It's it's the way that mobile enables ads to be far far more engaging. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, the word native is the one that comes to mind. You know, native advertising is one of these terms that gets bandied about a lot. But I think that's a feature of some of the best mobile advertising is that it feels like it's part of whatever product it's in. It feels like a natural part of it. It feels like an extension of the functionality. You know, in the case of Snapchat, it's a fun app for communication and sharing things with your friends and so on. And so these sponsored filters kind of fit right in with that. You know, you use them to do the very thing that the app is for. And so they're interactive in that sense and then they feel like they're part of the product, you know, on House or Pinterest or some of these other services. People are already using them for some of this stuff and, and this is a very natural way to kind of fit advertising into that to help people to find things that they may already be looking for. In that sense, it's a lot like the kind of Google desktop advertising. So you're explicitly searching for something and the uh, ads that show up at the top and the side are other suggestions for things relating to the thing you're searching for. And so it's a very natural fit. Uh, you explicitly expressed an interest in that particular thing and, and they fit with it. And Google's challenge has been they haven't been able to replicate that very natural kind of native fit uh, in mobile to anything like the same extent and these other products have. I think it's true for Facebook and Twitter advertising to some extent as well. It's kind of native in-stream advertising where the ads look just like another post uh, within the feed. Um, and so that's part of it too. Um, the, the, the time spent versus ad spend thing is interesting. I mean, that's a... a uh, slide that she's had in there for a number of years. I just went back and found the 2012 deck and she has that same slide in there, you know, with obviously different numbers in it. Back then, mobile was 1% of ad spend and 10% of time spent. And so obviously both those numbers have come up quite a bit. But there was a discrepancy back then and she talked about closing that gap. It hasn't necessarily closed a lot because mobile's uh, grown so much as a percentage of time spent. But obviously the percentage of ad spend has, has increased significantly during that time. What's interesting is the discrepancy on the print side is pretty much the same. And so some of these things do change over time. Some of them don't change that much. But certainly uh, there's an opportunity there. And it, but it's interesting to think about who that opportunity is going to in mobile advertising. As I mentioned, you know, it's not necessarily all going to Google in the way that desktop did. Facebook's obviously doing very well out of this. Snapchat's already doing well. And some of Facebook's other properties like Instagram are starting to do pretty well out of it too. So it's interesting to see kind of how that opportunity was is evolving over time and who's benefiting from it. Um, what was the second trend that you picked up on? Uh, it, cars are now officially tech from here forward. Okay. I, I, you know, we've you, even as in the past years we've done this podcast, we've sort of struggled with the idea of how much coverage do we do of cars because this is a tech podcast, and I think we've had moments where we're like, oh, we could talk about this issue, but I don't know, it feels sort of tangential to tech, not quite fitting all the way in with tech, and and up up until now, tech has always been something that was sort of attached to cars rather than 
than cars being a part of this larger tech industry. And I think Mary Meeker spent a lot of time on cars because the future of cars is, is in the tech world. Um, and it, primarily because of three attributes. And she didn't call these out specifically. This is sort of what her analysis got spinning off in my brain. But, but the reason I would call cars the future of cars um, being all about the tech industry is one, they're going to be electric. And, and, and that's a totally different set of engineering skills versus the combustion engines that we've been relying on for you know, over 100 years. And so, so th those are skills that are much more oriented toward um, the engineering skills that have been developed in the tech sector for decades now. I, th I think the change to electric is a, is a big deal for all kinds of reasons um, that are beyond just you know, sort of the equivalent of fuel efficiency. Um, I, I think number two, cars are going to be smart. We've got self-driving cars, um, you know, on the pretty close horizon. And, and in fact, if you count Tesla, you know, it, it Tesla's autopilot feature, they already are on the road. In fact, I think Tesla has logged something like a million miles with their autopilot uh, feature being turned on by, by Tesla drivers. And, and, and what's so amazing about that, right, is that that is driven by software. Like that's not, that, that's, you know, the smart part of a car is is a is a software different thing where you have software engineers designing this stuff and and again this is totally unique to um, or totally different than the history of car manufacturing you know in the US or globally and and there are only you know more and more of these smart innovations coming down the road the the third thing that's changing about cars is that they're going to be networked and i mean that in two senses and, and Mary Meeker kind of talked about one of the two. Uh, one is that, you know, as a smart car, what's going to enhance it being smart is the fact that it will talk with other cars. Sometimes one of my favorite little videos to watch that will pop up in my news feed is a visualization of how an intersection can work when everybody's driving a self, uh, you know, a, a self-navigating car. And what's so amazing about it is that these cars all know where everyone else is on the road. They know where all the other cars are. They know their velocity, their they, they, you know, and they know what it will take to avoid a collision. And instead of, you know, stoplights or roundabouts, instead you can just essentially have these cars sort of weave through each other to make it through an intersection. And that, to me, is 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 amazing. Not just because it's about the cars being smart, but it's about the cars talking to each other and knowing where everyone is as, as they approach. And, and this idea of 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 computer networking. Enhancing the way cars work is, again, very much a tech thing. It's like an internet of cars, essentially. But there's another aspect of cars being networked that makes them feel much more like tech, which is the social way in which cars will be networked. Um, you know, Mary Meeker drew attention to the fact that the future of cars is not going to be Uber X, right, where I just need a, an individual ride and I'll you know, and I'll pull up the app and, and, and hire an Uber. Instead, it's Uber Pool, where sort of everybody kind of chips in and shares in a, in a car service, and we all sort of get a car as we need it. And this service has, you know, hundreds of cars sitting on a lot somewhere, and I just schedule in a time for the car to come pick up my kids and take them to school. So I don't even actually have to own a car. And, and that feels much more like the tech sector today, right? I mean, if you think of the services we use, they are part that the tech services we use, they are primarily the product of, you know, a whole bunch of us benefiting from one organization that has produced this thing that we can all enjoy. There's a lot more um, replicability. There's, 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 uh, um, there's, Gosh, I'm having a hard time getting the word for this. Anyway, there, there, there's more to share there. There's more abundance there. And there's also a lot less waste. Um, you know, I, when I think about how much my car sits, like in the parking lot while I'm at work or in my garage when I'm home at night, um, that's essentially waste of capital. And, and, and this efficiency is something that is much more characteristic of the tech sector. So, so that's a long summary of kind of my thoughts on it. But I think with Mary Meeker spending so much time on it, I think this, this, from this year forward, I think we can legitimately call cars a, a tech sector industry. Yeah, it's, what's fascinating, of course, is that the vast majority of cars are not made by the tech industry, but by the traditional car industry, right? And so you have Tesla out there that's, you know, arguably a tech company as much as a car company. And it's 
starting to make cars, but the, the absolute number of cars that they make is still extremely small compared to the overall numbers of cars produced every year around the world and so on. And so the big question is just to what extent the big car manufacturers can adapt to this new reality. And, and you do hear the, the big... Uh, the leaders of the big car companies talking about you know the car as a mobile device or a smartphone on wheels or other terminology like that. I thought uh, some of the interesting quotes in the deck were from I think the Ford CEO and I think the GM CEO talking about basically new ways of measuring uh, the car industry. So it's not so much going to be about how many cars sold anymore as about the number of miles driven because uh, as people start to share cars, each car will be driven far more. Uh, because it'll be in use far more of the time rather than being dormant most of the time. Um, and so talking about new metrics, and that's going to be a big thing for the car industry too. The other thing that's interesting, of course, is all the investments that have been made by car companies in ride-sharing services and partnerships with those services and so on. And so GM in particular has been very active in snapping up small ride-sharing companies and car rental companies as a way to tap into these emerging trends. Uh, we talked recently about you know, Apple's DD investment, but... Um, you know, Uber and Toyota just did a deal. Uh, there's, there's basically every major car company has at least some kind of relationship or investment in or both uh, ride-sharing services and so on because it's, it's becoming clearer and clearer that's going to be a meaningful chunk of total usage of cars going forward and that the old model is going to be, if not supplanted, then at least supplemented by new ways of either owning or at least riding in cars that you don't own. And so that's another obviously really important trend. But yeah, the vehicle, the vehicle stuff you were talking about earlier, it's interesting. That's a big area that some of the big network equipment manufacturers like Ericsson and Nokia and so on are investing very heavily in because there's a new set of devices essentially that can be networked. So absolutely, you know, this is part of the telecom market. This is part of the, the tech market. And those companies are taking the lead on some of this stuff uh, as, as we move forward too. You had another trend that I think you wanted to talk about too. Yeah, and this is, I mean, there are going to be listeners who are going to hear what I have to say and, and just kind of go, well, duh. But I think the realization for me was as she was talking through the, the growth of the Internet in China and its penetration there and the way the Internet works in China, I, I, and I'm not the only one who's thought this, <clears throat> but I've had a general feeling of this idea of China eventually taking over the Internet. Um, but I've come to a conclusion because of this, that because of um, what I was thinking as I was reading through a deck today, I, I don't think it's. I don't think China is going to take over the internet. I think we're just going to have two internets. I, I think China. You know, when you look at the nature of the of the internet and internet usage in China, it's a separate internet. I mean, it's it, obviously it's not physically separate. All these things are networked together, and I can go to Baidu.com if I want to. But, but the but the point is, is that um, it is a separate. Or I should say .cn. Anyway, but it is. China's internet is is essentially a separate internet, and I don't think I don't, I don't picture the China the internet as far as China is concerned taking over the rest of the internet, which has obviously been dominated by the United States. And so I, I think we're going to have two. I think we're going to have a Chinese speaking internet and an English speaking internet. And I think they're going to mature, continue to mature together. And uh, I think essentially the world ten years from now is going to be about two internets, not one. Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote a piece, when was it, back in, I think, August 2014 or something like that, uh, or actually April 2014, about kind of the Chinese tech firms and um, for tech pinions. And, and some of the analysis that I did was looking at the top 20 U.S. internet properties uh, and where the companies behind them make most of their money. And, and with only a couple of exceptions, the vast majority of those companies made more money outside the U.S. than in because they're essentially global businesses that have, yes, a major presence in the U.S., but, but are global in nature. I did the same analysis for the top, tw top, tw top 20 companies. Only two that made less than 90% of their money from China itself. And so it's very different animals. They're very much national companies that benefit from the enormous scale in China itself. But conversely, you know, we talk a lot about the difficulty of Western companies breaking into China, but it works the other way too. It's very hard for these big Chinese companies to break out of China in a meaningful way and be as successful outside of China as they are domestically. And there's cultural reasons behind that. There's language reasons behind that. There's ownership and, and you know, suspicion of, of foreign companies going both ways. Um, but there's, there are lots of challenges. On the other hand, 
there are some big themes that have kind of taken off in China that behaviorally, even if not the same companies, but behaviorally have then taken off elsewhere. So bots that we've talked about quite a bit over the last few months, for example, took off in China to some extent, other Asian countries with these big messaging platforms. And so the key is, you know, even if the companies are going to be different, which of the sort of themes and behavioral shifts and so on that perhaps start in China end up showing up elsewhere in the world too, even if the companies behind them are different. And so that's another thing that's really interesting to watch because there are still some really big things that are happening in China that haven't shown up in the West yet. Some of them will never show up there, but some of them probably will. And the, one of the tricks, if you're analyzing the market, is okay, which of these things have the best potential to, to be exported by China uh, to, to other parts of the world? All right, well, let's wrap up uh, that conversation there and we'll, we'll wrap up this episode as well with our weekly pick. And again, as a reminder to listeners, this is where we take it in turns to recommend something that we've been using or enjoying recently and uh, share it with our listeners. And we, we'll always post links on the website to whatever it is that we're recommending. And this week, it's Aaron's turn. So back in episode 37, I think it was, I recommended a Netflix series called Chef's Table. Uh, this is a series produced and directed by David Gelb. He is the uh, guy who wrote and directed Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is a really successful and popular um, documentary about a sushi a, a sushi chef, and that's a hard <laughs> phrase to say, in, in Japan, um, who uh, has been internationally recognized uh, as three Michelin stars, which is a really big deal. Um, anyway, so... So Chef's Table Season 1 was really successful, um, uh, really exciting, and so I recommended it back then. And back then I noted that Netflix had signed up to do three more seasons of Chef's Table. Well, Season 2 is now available on Netflix. So this is a bit of a rerun of a, of a weekly pick, but the thing I'm recommending is not a rerun. Uh, and I will say, and so I've, I'm about halfway through, or I am halfway through season two of Chef's Table, and I, so far I'm enjoying it better than season one even. Um, the uh, the chefs that they're covering are fascinating. Um, uh, so far I've watched the episodes on Grant uh, Hats, who uh, who uh, runs this really innovative uh, restaurant in Chicago. Alex Atala, who's a Brazilian chef who essentially took and and elevated Brazilian queen to cuisine to national to international respect, and then uh, Dominique Ren, who is uh, the only U.S. woman to earn uh, two Michelin stars, um, and these are fascinating personalities. What I love about this series is the way you get an insight into their personal life, and and you know this isn't just about food. Part of the reason I love this is also because it's about art, and all of these chefs are artists, and I think that's why season two is resonating with me so much so far because. The, the, the chefs that they've chosen are especially strong on the artistic component uh, of, of cuisine. And so um, that's my recommendation is season two of Chef's Table. Um, there are six episodes. Each one is, is somewhere between, you know, 45 to 60 minutes long. But uh, um, I think uh, if, if you've enjoyed season one, then definitely make time for season Great. two. Thanks, Aaron. We'll include the Netflix link on the website at podcast.beyonddevices as well. Thank you for being with us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We are coming up on our one-year anniversary uh, here next week. Our first episode of this podcast was last year when we did a uh, Apple WWDC preview, and it will be that time of year again next week, the week before WWDC. So I imagine that uh, we will spend at least some time next week doing a preview of this year's developer conference, uh, as well as hopefully covering some other topics as well. So we hope you join us again then. Thanks. <laughs>